Hello. Uh, today, my guest is Professor Helen D. Cherry. Uh, I'll keep my introduction short to maximize our time with her. In the next 30 minutes or so, we'll talk about Helen as a person, Professor D. Cherry as a thought leader and an esteemed scholar, and finally, as a mentor to many PhD students and junior faculty. For the sake of time, I'll skip many of uh, her accomplishments and give you a very quick snapshot. Professor DiCherry has researched and published on topics related to human resource management and employee well-being. Her current research interests include inclusive management practices, um, employee well-being, organizational performance. She has researched and consulted with a wide variety and a range of public and private organizations in Australia and overseas, has extensive experience in collaborative, co-designed research projects. Thank you, Helen, for joining us. Hello, thank you for inviting me. So Helen, uh, what did you want to become when you were a child? Well, my family background is Italian. My parents were migrants to Australia. And so I grew up in a neighborhood where there were a lot of migrant families. My school friends were from Sri Lanka, France, Italy, the Netherlands. Uh, from all over the world. And so I was fascinated by the different cultures and um, by the different food we had in our lunchboxes at school. We used to trade our food. And, you know, of course, we all were embarrassed by the food that we had that was distinctive about our culture. So I wanted a job to travel. And so I thought being a flight attendant would be a good way of doing that because I'd be paid to travel around the world. Um, then when I was 12, I told my parents that I was going to be a research psychologist. And my parents were not academics. They had no idea what a research psychologist was. I don't know where I got the idea from. But I said I didn't want to have patience and solve their problems. I wanted to find out why people behave the way they do. I wanted to research people. And so I went to university and studied psychology. Uh, for a while, I wanted to do forensic psychology. So I also studied criminology. And then after some time in juvenile courts, I realized the incredible demands of the job and thought I'd burn out very quickly if I tried doing that kind of job. So I became interested in the everyday stressors of work and organizational psychology and I had wonderful mentors at university who encouraged me to do that and I was working as a research assistant in the university and uh, Peter Dowling rang the psychology department looking for someone to do a week's work on a, a paper he was preparing for academy of management and Peter Dowling was working in the business school at the time so then I went to work for him for a week and he said you know, I can offer you a job as a research assistant for a year. And, uh, you know, if you work on these papers and uh, have a paper accepted to a conference, the university will pay for you to travel to the conference. <laughs> well, I thought, this is fantastic. I'm going to get a job where they pay me to travel. So that's how I ended up where I am. <laughs> where did you get your PhD? Uh, so my first degrees were from the University of Melbourne in Australia, and then my PhD is from the University of Tasmania in Australia. Okay, so uh, well, from the early 
days basically you knew that you wanted to get into academia and you chose your uh, area quite specifically after this experience right yes yeah. okay um oh, that's quite fascinating actually um something that is not on your cv that people might find interesting uh <laughs> well one thing is i do live in melbourne which is uh, claiming to be the city with the longest lockdown with 262 days and that's been really interesting to see from a mental health perspective and to see how that's um affecting the way that we are working in teams because we're all working virtually and to see how people are making the transition back out of lockdown. And I think it's quite different for people in my hometown of Melbourne, hometown of Melbourne compared with the people I'm talking to in other parts of the world who are already taking flights and traveling around as normal. So I think we will take a, a longer time to come out of that. Um, the other thing people probably struggle with about me is figuring out how to say my surname, and I really accept any kind of pronunciation that they'll <laughs> say. <laughs> um, if you stopped what you're doing today, what would be your second best career choice, second best alternative? Oh, look, if I stop what I'm doing today, I'm just, my, <laughs> I'd want to retire and travel for fun rather than for work. Um, so I think what I would like to do would be to be more involved in the other side of my research, which I do, which is not international business, but which is around issues of inclusive organisations. And uh, my more recent work has been involved with organisations that are dealing with a, a high level of occupational violence and aggression. And so I, I really um, would like to continue that kind of work. I think this goes back to my interest in forensic psychology as well. I've seen that the streams of research that I've done really are based in my very early interests and continue to combine those. Let me ask a different question. Uh, since travel is such a big part of your life and it has been a driving force uh, in, in many aspects, uh, of all the places you've traveled, uh, where would you like to live forever if you had to leave your hometown? I, my mother comes from this small town in northern Italy. And when I've traveled there, I feel like I'm at home. There are people there who look like me. And so I think that kind of connection hmm. would draw me to that, that area of the world. So um, when I was growing up, my parents were trying to fit in even though we were all migrant families there was a strong push to be good Australians to become more Anglo and so my parents didn't uh, speak Italian to us at home they encouraged us to speak English they spoke Italian to their own parents but didn't didn't encourage us to speak Italian so so going to Italy and reconnecting there would be a dream perfect uh, regrets have you got any regrets? Uh, look, probably the things that I wasn't brave enough to do, I'd like to, to go back and do them. The, thing, the opportunities where I thought, you know, I thought about doing a PhD outside Australia, and at the time I just wasn't brave enough to do that. Hmm. And now I'd like to kind of give myself a kick and say, go on, you can do that. <laughs> go, and, go and just do it. Um, there are regrets probably about being too 
outspoken, sometimes being um, perhaps too much of a difficult woman. But then again, you know, I'm glad I did. I'm glad when I have spoken up or called out bad behaviour. I think that that is important. It's easier to do that when you're a professor than when you're just starting out. Uh, so my regrets would be when I haven't done things rather than the things that I've done. So I should probably apologise for some things that I've done as well. <laughs> uh, what's your biggest failure and what did you learn from it? Ah, well, there's probably a long list of failures. Um, but I think failing is good. Failing is just learning learning what you can do better next time. And it's not as bad as you think and you can forgive yourself. I'm probably harder on myself than anyone else would be. Um, so it's just keep going, don't quit, try it again a different way. Um, maybe I didn't, whatever I wanted to do, I didn't sell it in the right way that was appealing to other people. So thinking about seeing it from the other perspective and working out why whatever it was that failed and uh, maybe there's another chance to come back to it later. I think there have sometimes been ideas that I've had for papers, for example, and the paper hasn't been successful, but then somehow later I can work it into another paper and uh, I know that the idea wasn't that bad. I just hadn't figured it out properly the first time around. Hmm. Interesting. And what are you most passionate about? Oh, look, I'm Italian background. I'm passionate about everything, really. Uh, <laughs> one of my bosses once told me that I was, um, uh, I cared too much for my own good about things. And look, I'm quite comfortable with that. I think it's important to care about things. Uh, what I care about in research is really doing research that's got integrity and that has some meaning. I think I did research for a long time that was, uh, about HR practices and helping companies to perform more effectively. And while I felt that contributed in a way, the research that I'm more passionate about is the research that's about employee wellbeing and identifying ways to make organisations better places to be. So supporting mental health, um, creating workforces that are, are thriving rather than just surviving. Thank you. Now let, let's switch to, for the sake of time, uh, switch to the research portion. Sure. Um, if you're stranded in a small village and the locals don't know anything about you, uh, how do you explain what you do, what, what your research is, and why your research is important to people who don't read your work regularly? So my research is really about uh, people in multinationals and how they deal with cross-cultural experiences. Uh, more recently, my research has been about um, the health and safety of employees in international work and how international work affects not only their mental health, but physical health. And as we've seen in the last couple of years, their, their physiological health, how uh, doing international work can be very stimulating, can uh, expose you to all sorts of new experiences for career development, but also takes a toll in terms of work-life balance and relationships and health and well-being and safety. Mm -hmm. And I think those are areas that I hope others are interested in exploring as well over the next few years. 
Okay, uh, Helen, about omitted variables or uh, neglected areas of research in IB mm -hmm. uh, going forward. Uh, I'm not saying we haven't done it, but uh, things that we need to cover more of. Uh, what would be those areas? Um, so, so one would be around health and safety as a dependent variable. Uh, in the international HR field, we've done a lot of work looking at the adjustment of expatriates and how they deal with the psychological stresses of working overseas. But we've kind of stopped there. And from talking to practitioners, we know that many expatriates and people who travel a lot for work experience anxiety and stress and depression and illnesses, even jet lag. And our research has really not looked at those as important variables that affect our productivity and our work and our career trajectories and the way in which we can best perform what we do. So the health and safety aspects, I would love to see more attention to. There's been research in other disciplines and I think management could benefit from multidisciplinary research. Mm -hmm. I'd also love to see more attention given to issues around inclusion. And my personal interest is in gender equality. Uh, but a lot of the research that we've done has been with fairly um, demographically limited uh, populations. And so to see voices of people who've not been heard from in international research, um, workers who are not professional workers, um, women who are professional workers, but, you know, we've heard less, for example, around the health and safety issues that are particular to women. Uh, so issues around diversity and issues around health and safety would be the areas I would love to see more attention to. The people we don't hear about, uh, you were mentioning mm. something about uh, immigrants yeah. and migrant workers. Yeah. Um, about uh, how do you write? Like, do, do you write every day? Do you work every I day? I try to. Uh, the last couple of years, I've been really productive, actually. I enjoy working from home. When I write, I need to lock myself away for a period of time. And I'm fortunate to be able to do that. So I try to block out time in my calendar when I just focus on writing. Um, I find that I need to read a lot first and think. So I go for walks and come back and, and I find that my ideas cook away while I'm walking or doing something else. Uh, and I love talking to what I think of as my tribe of people. I think that's one thing that I've really enjoyed in the, the IB community and international HR community is the, the community of scholars that are happy to discuss research and brainstorm ideas. And although that's been harder to do on Zoom than it is in person when we're in different countries, still um, swapping ideas, developing ideas through our conversations and uh, sometimes it's just off the cuff comments that someone makes that we can build into an idea that goes into a paper. That I really enjoy doing that. Yeah. So uh, a student comes to your office, uh, well, assuming that there's an office, <laughs> we go to an <laughs> office, and the student is uh, saying uh, he or she is not passionate about anything yet. She is or he is still looking for things to develop. Um, if you had a crystal ball and if you could make a prediction about what's going to be one of the top interesting uh, topics to discuss over the 
next five to 10 years uh, as a dissertation topic. What would you suggest uh, for young uh, colleagues to work on? That's interesting. Usually the students come with their own great ideas. And I think when I think about my own PhD students, they've been people who have already been passionate about an idea. So uh, one who was passionate about studying aid and development organisations and how they managed strategic international HR. Uh, others who were passionate about expatriates, expatriate women or expatriates and how organisations manage their return on investment, for example. So often, even if I try to tell my ideas to students, the students have their own ideas anyway. Uh, so I encourage them to read. I might give them 10 papers to read that are, you know, those kinds of papers that are about the state of the art of the field or the grand challenges of the field and see if they can find an idea that kind of speaks to them. And from that, we'll have a conversation. Uh, but really, I think it has to be driven by the students. If you start with the topic you're not passionate about, it's hard to continue. When I think about my own PhD, I was deciding which topic to do. And one of the professors for whom I was working as a research assistant said, don't go international HRM, don't do that. It's a quasi academic area. It's not gonna take off. It's really not gonna be good for your career. What you should do is industrial relations. And I'm really glad I didn't listen to that person. <laughs> and, um, yeah. he, he probably doesn't agree with me but I'm very happy that I did what I was passionate about uh, so I'd encourage them to to look at the, the health and safety issues because that's what I'm passionate about but I'm always interested in uh, seeing things from the students point of view and particularly early career researchers and junior scholars and and young students see things from a different perspective. And I learned so much from them because they'll bring technology in, they'll bring ideas in, they'll bring methodological ideas that I have not done myself. And so I learned from them as well. Let me ask you something, Kevin. Uh, uh, the, um, I asked this question to pretty much everyone. Um, people who are on the camp uh, that uh, believe in and promote globalization is going to be continuing for the next 20, 30 years versus the other camp uh, where uh, populism, nationalism is going to be uh, gaining uh, ground again. Uh, how will that, uh, how, how is that dynamic going to impact your area, your research? Um, I think it's, it's a huge challenge. The, the last couple of years have been particularly challenging for the HR function as they've had to manage huge changes in international work, people working virtually rather than having developmental experiences across countries. And so one of the, the challenges of managing the, the border closures has been maintaining connections and maintaining global teams. And I think that there's negative nationalism that I see rising in my own country and in others. And in some ways there's 
less cooperative relations between countries. And, and for smaller countries, closing borders is particularly significant when you have the physical distance that Australia does from other parts of the world. Mm-hmm. I, I think we're an interesting test case for the balance between global connection and um, national parochialism and focus. I think where it's combined with a strong, even toxic masculinity, that becomes a real problem in in political terms. Uh, Maybe that's getting too political, but for the HR function in particular, I think we need to find ways to maintain connections. So when I talk to practitioners, uh, they've been, for example, developing diversity and inclusion strategies, doing that virtually across all of the geographies of the multinational operations. So they've had to find ways to bring perspectives in from countries where people might not feel comfortable speaking up, um, having breakout rooms in Zoom meetings, having virtual means of people offering their ideas, encouraging connections that even if they can't be in person face-to-face, can help people to learn from each other's perspectives. I think they're real challenges for us. And that also applies to academia. You know, I think the, the, the move to virtual conferences has been particularly hard for PhD students and early career researchers because it's those networks and connections that you make that might be informal that are much harder to do virtually. When I think about the first conference I ever went to, it was AIB in Singapore in 1989. That tells you how old I am too. And I was incredibly nervous. This was my first time I'd been paid to go overseas to present my work. So I was very excited. Um, And Mary Teagarden said to me, I was a reviewer for your paper and I really liked it. Good luck, keep going. And that was fantastic. I'm sure she doesn't remember, but that kind of kindness makes a huge difference to a young researcher. And it's really hard to do that in virtual communication. So we need to find ways to maintain global contact and maintain global relationships, I think. Mm. This is an interesting story. Uh, Thanks for sharing it. (laughs) I went to my first conference, Academy of Management, Chicago. Uh, It was like starstruck. I read these people's work. Uh, I see them in person. I'm reading the name tags or things that are dangling. And, and these are human, but in, for some reason, I have uh, I've thought that they were almost almost immortal. <laughs> so I thought they yeah. were gods, and um, and it was quite interesting. Uh, you know, uh, nothing replaces the personal experience with with, with the conference. Definitely, you're you're right on that one. Um, about advice, uh, let's just talk about things not to do first and then things to do. Uh, mm-hmm. In your opinion, in your experience, when you meet young uh, colleagues, uh, what are some of the things that they do that they shouldn't? I think, and, and I was probably like this as well, people are often in a, are in a rush to clock up publications and uh be able to have a publication count that they think will be enough to get them promotion or tenure. And what I really try to encourage them to do is to take time to know their topic, to think about it in theoretical terms. And often students 
rush over the theory development part. And I think if you don't learn that early on, it's much harder to develop that later. So think deeply about the problems and the questions and keep asking people the questions. And don't be afraid to ask questions. If you go to a senior academic and say, I'm really interested in this topic, I've thought about it, I've developed my ideas, can you give me some advice? We're all so passionate about research, we'll be happy to have a conversation. But if you go to them and say, I haven't thought about something, but can you tell me what I should study? We're less likely to engage. And so take time to understand the problem really well. There's always a new way of looking at it. Try to be creative and and be curious thinking about your own research. I think that's wonderful. Um, But trying to get the balance between uh, being productive and doing work that has meaning and that will um, hopefully make a difference. Mm-hmm. What was the best advice you received when you were going through the program? Uh, your PhD is not world peace. Just get it done and then you can do the things that you really want to do. <laughs> get it done, yeah. Um, also, you know, it's a small world. You have a long career. Um Sometimes you'll be asked to do things like journal reviews and you know, you're not going to be paid for doing them. There'll be things that are just volunteer activities, but they often pay off in so many more meaningful ways. So try not to say no to opportunities that are what my PhD supervisor used to call learning opportunities. Um, this is a learning opportunity for you, Helen. You can go and do this work and you'll learn a lot out of this. And um, A lot of the times it just felt like I was doing grunt work, um, you know, work that no one else wanted to do because I was junior. But actually, it was a learning opportunity. It was a way of seeing how my senior colleagues operated and interacted um, and being aware of what was appropriate and what wasn't appropriate. I had to learn all of that along the way. Um, uh, I mean, everyone is reading the literature, everyone is doing the methods, uh, they are uh, improving themselves uh, mm-hmm. as they take courses and uh, put in them some number of years. But which skills are more valuable or which skills are more difficult to develop uh, that will lead to a better career or more successful career? Oh, I think it depends on what kind of career you want to have. For me, the the skill that was hard to learn but valuable was engaging with practitioners and understanding things from their point of view. And I do see a lot of my own students say, I want to study this because then I'll have a great data set and I'll be able to get it published in a great journal. That's really good. But if you go to an organisation and say, I want your data so I can have a great publication, it's not going to work. So you need to think of your research in ways that will be valuable to the end user, ways that will be seen as meaningful to the organisations that you're working with. And uh, I have to say, I made decisions that some of the work I do is not going to end up in top journals, but it has high practical value. And I'm comfortable with that personally. Uh, But it's work that is not in IB. I do work that is, for example, a current project is with an organisation that 
provides residential care to children, um, mainly Indigenous children in Australia, who are unable to stay in their own homes. And uh, the people working in those homes often experience a lot of occupational violence. The kids are traumatised when they come in and they're quite violent and aggressive often. But it, it's incredibly difficult work. It's cross-cultural work. It's work that has a strong impact on mental health. And the research that we're doing is looking at ways that leaders can support their employees through these experiences. And we're working with every level from frontline workers through to the board members. Um, for me, that's really meaningful work, but it's um, very practical work. I, I, I'm not sure it will end up in a, it's not gonna be in an IB journal. It'll end up in a journal, but for me, it's helping those workers that's actually more meaningful. So learning which work I wanna do, which work has meaning, and when it's involved with organisations, how it's going to be of value to them. Yeah. Perfect. Um, Helen, what's the question that I should have asked you about Evans? <laughs> um, uh, look, I wanna ask you a question. I wanna know why I'm here. I think uh, maybe it's imposter syndrome that you know, I wonder why would I be chosen? <laughs> so I should say to junior colleagues, don't have imposter syndrome, just go with it. If they ask you to do things, do it. And um, I'm not sure what other question. Um, I think maybe for, for junior scholars, it's, you know, be comfortable that, you know, we're working in a time that is fantastic if you're starting a PhD or starting a career. Because we don't know what's going to happen for the next few years. All the things we thought we knew about global work and global careers have been brought into question. And that's wonderful because you've got an opportunity to be doing research that will inform the next couple of decades at least. We need to learn how to work in a kind of post-COVID world and you know, the stuff that I wrote in the 90s may not be that useful for the people who are researching now. They need to develop their own work. So um, uh, think about social questions, grand challenges, make them applicable to the world. Um, I don't know. Any other questions? Maybe. <laughs> Perfect. Uh, thank you so much for your time. I enjoyed